0: I know that um, with uh, the way that I'm dressed today uh, me saying the following is probably going to be a shock to you that I'm a terrible shopper of clothes (laughs) if you ask my wife what it's like to go shopping with me she'll say it's a really bad experience (laughs) I'm a typical man I have a very clear idea about what I want to get from a shop I go to the shop, I go in, I buy it, and then I go home. And I think that's the experience of most men. What else is there? (laughs) I just don't, I can't do the whole compare-contrast thing, you know, when you try and compare different clothes, different colours, different styles. Now, evidently, Paul was not like me, the Apostle Paul. He was very, very good at comparing and contrasting uh, subjects, spiritual things. And I say that because what we have before us today in this text is a contrast. Paul is going to be comparing and contrasting two subjects or two beings. In the first half of this text, in verses 1 to 3, he's going to be talking about human beings mankind he's going to be talking about what they're like what they do and what the consequences are of their actions and then in the second half of this text in verses 4 to 7 he's going to talk about God what God is like what God has done and what he's doing and what the consequences are of that now obviously the background of this contrast is Ephesians 1 and uh, john and joe have been going through that over the last few weeks and we've seen in this first chapter of ephesians this great eternal plan of god to save human beings we've seen that in the doctrine of election the doctrine of redemption in christ's blood the doctrine of us having an inheritance in jesus and the reality of jesus's position now in the universe, his authority over all things. And so with that background, Paul's purpose in giving this contrast today is to show us why we need this eternal plan of salvation. And also he wants to show us that the means by which that can only take place is through God's grace, his mercy and his love. That's his purpose in giving it to us today. Now, I want you to keep in mind that when we go through this text, what you're going to hear is very, very countercultural. What you're taught in mainstream British society today is the fact that human beings are generally good, that there's goodness within their hearts, within their souls, and that the idea of God is bad. Now, that's not a new uh, philosophy. It's been around since the beginning of the world. But it became more popular again in our history about 400 years ago in the Enlightenment. And then it took a hold in the 20th century. And now we're beginning to see the fruit in our culture and in our society of that philosophy that man is essentially good and God is essentially bad. And the thing is, is that as that philosophy's developed in our culture Christians have had less of a say in the public square and we've become much more marginalized in culture and we can't interact with people now and, and, and give them the truth because people just reject us straight away and I just feel that the Lord wants to remind us this morning of what Jesus did When he suffered rejection in his life, remember when he was uh, in Mark chapter 6, rejected in Nazareth, what did he do? He immediately sent out his disciples to go and preach the gospel to people. So in the midst of rejection, Jesus doesn't just kind of edge back and become marginalized and not say anything. He goes to that culture and he interacts with that culture and tells them, The truth and I just feel the Spirit wants to remind us this morning of that and tell us that we need to do the same thing now in our generation we need to not accept being marginalized and turn back in towards our culture and tell them the truth tell them what you're going to hear this morning through this text just keep that in mind as we go through it so he starts off in verse one and he says, And you he made alive who were. So in in this first bit, he's addressing the Ephesian Christians that he's writing to, because he says, And you he made alive, and then he says, who were. And so what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to address what these Christians were like before they were saved, before they became believers. And in a general sense, in him doing that, he's wanting to make statements about what humanity is like when they don't know God, when they are not saved. And he says there, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now the word for dead there is the Greek word that describes a corpse, a physical body that is dead. Now, one of the unfortunate things about my job as a GP is that sometimes I have to go to funeral directors and be involved in organising cremations and uh, burials, and I have to view dead bodies. And I can tell you that when you view a dead body, if you try and speak to it, if you try to get its attention, it will not respond to you relationally, because that person that was there has gone. The body is dead. It's a physical corpse now think about what you were like before you were a Christian were you a physical corpse no you weren't you were going around you were interacting with people you were relating to people living your life and so what Paul's speaking of here is not the idea of physical death specifically he's speaking about the death or the deadness of our non-physical part what the Bible would describe as the heart, or the spirit, or the soul. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, where did this deadness of soul or spirit come from? What does it look like? Well, for that you have to go back to the beginning. In Genesis 2, verses 15 and 17, That should come up on the, on the screen. It says there, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so God in the beginning put Adam in the garden of Eden. His job was to be a gardener essentially of that place. He gave him freedom to eat of all the trees except one and he said if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall surely die and the Hebrew word for die there is better translating dying you shall die it describes the process of dying now we know from history and from obviously the biblical account that Adam didn't listen to God Adam did eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he sinned, he fell, he rebelled and what happened? Did he physically die at that point? No, he didn't but what we do see happening in the account in Genesis is that his relationship with God changed straight away. He was no longer able to walk freely with God, he had to hide himself from God and then he was kicked out of the Garden of Eden by the Lord and from that moment on you don't really see any evidence of Adam interacting with God in an intimate way and so God's relationship with man or man's relationship with God changed at that point it came to an end man was no longer able to relate to God as he did in the Garden of Eden now Different theologians debate amongst themselves about what the extent and what the nature of this deadness is. But I think very clearly the Bible teaches that man's relationship with God ended in the Garden of Eden. And he was no longer able to relate to God in his sinfulness. And the unfortunate thing is, is that every single human being ever since Adam, other than Jesus Christ has had this deadness in their soul, in their hearts. We see this very clearly taught in Romans 5, verse 12, where it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. There's this idea here that when he says death in this verse, it's not just physical death. It is that deadness of heart. Every single man has had that ever since Adam in the Garden of Eden. So when Paul says here that you were dead, he's talking about deadness of heart, unable to relate to God, and not having a relationship with him. And then he says that you were dead in trespasses and sins. And the word there for trespasses means to deviate away from a standard... The word for sins there means to miss the mark, to miss the mark of a standard. And so what Paul's saying here is that not only have we inherited this deadness from Adam, but we've inherited a sinful nature. We have all inherited this tendency to do the wrong thing, to deviate away from God's holy character and his law that he set down in the Old Testament. We all miss the mark of God's holy character and his Lord that he set down in the Old Testament. And we all know this, don't we? We, we? If we're all being honest with ourselves in here, we all know there's something wrong with humanity. We know that humanity does the wrong thing, that he is always doing the wrong thing. And all of the sort of answers that we get from secularism and atheism about how man hasn't been educated enough or he's had the wrong upbringing, they're not sufficient answers to the reality of the fact that man is always doing the wrong thing. And so, Paul here is really, I would say, presenting to us the state that every human being is born into. Every human being is born into this place where they don't have a relationship with God, where they cannot relate to God, where they are always deviating towards the wrong and they make the choice to do the wrong thing and so further harden their hearts to God and push him away. A good way to describe this state is evil. The definition in the Oxford Dictionary for evil should be up on the Um, on the screen where it says, morally wrong, or bad, immoral, wicked. This is what every single human being is like in their nature. So there's this internal rebellion in man, there's this internal corruption, there's this internal evil. And God holds every single one of us accountable and responsible for that state now those of you who are actually listening to me at this point and taking note might be asking yourself the question well that seems a bit unfair Adam I mean we're born into this state how can God hold us responsible or accountable for the internal evil that's in our hearts well there's two reasons why he does The first is that when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, the Bible teaches, I think, theologically, that he was the federal representative of mankind. What that means is, is it means that every action that Adam took in his relationship with God and the consequences of that would be accounted to his descendants. So God would view what Adam did as belonging to us this is taught very clearly i think in romans chapter 5 verse 19 where it says for as one for for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous which we'll come on to later on but where it says that many were made that's written in the greek in a way that says it was adam's action his single action that made us sinners, in a way that God views us as being sinners. This is the doctrine of um, original sin, or a better way, I think, of saying it is the doctrine of inherited guilt, that God counts us guilty, all of his descendants of sin, in Adam's action. But the other reason why God holds us accountable is because we all do sin, don't we? All of us in here, if we're being honest, know that in each of our lives, we've chosen to deviate away from God's holy character. We've chosen to not do the right thing. We've chosen to do the wrong thing. So man here, brothers and sisters, is presented as being dead in his heart in trespasses and sins. Now, if you think that's depressing... It's going to get a bit more. So just bear with me as we go along in this this section. So he goes on, he says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So he says, look, when you were in this state of being dead in trespasses and sins, you used to walk according to two things. Two things. And the word according there means that you were in agreement with these things. So you were in agreement with the course of this world. And when he says that, he's saying that you were in agreement with the history or the general historical testimony or evidence of the world. Now, when you read world history, you definitely see that man has made significant progression over the centuries in civilization, in technology. In lots of different things. But you also see that the history of man is full of evil. It is full of unjust war. It is full of things like slavery and corruption, people being taken advantage of. It is truly a very bad read, <laughs> the history of man. And even the progression that man has made is really in his own pride and in his own self-centeredness. And so what Paul's saying here is he's saying that you were in agreement with this evil history of the world. He then says that you were in agreement with the prince of the power of the air. And that phrase is not used that often in in the scripture, so we don't really know what he's saying there uh, at first. But then when he says the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that phrase helps us because we can identify who he's speaking about from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4a, where it says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. Now Jesus often referred to the devil as being the God of this age. It is him who works in those who do not believe and so therefore the spirit who is working in the sons of disobedience is a phrase of saying it's the devil who's working in those who are not responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ and so the devil is the prince and the power of the air are those who are with him his demons now I could do we could do a whole sermon series on Satan and demons here in the church, but very basically, the devil was God's greatest creation. He wasn't the devil at that stage, he was an angel, who was the greatest creation of God before he made this world, Lucifer. He fell, he rebelled against God and he took a third of the angels with him. He was kicked out of heaven and cast down to the earth. And the Bible says that he is a liar, that he's a murderer, and he is not someone you should follow. Very, very clearly from the Scriptures. But Paul's saying here that you were in agreement with the devil and his demons when you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, Paul is saying this because he wants to make it clear that man is not alone in his internal evil that he is joined externally to evil the evil history of the world and the devil but he's also wanting to say this here because he wants to make sure that man cannot excuse himself because what do we often do when we know we've done something wrong we often blame other people don't we it's his fault or it's her fault I've definitely learnt that since I've been a parent the number of times I've had my children come up to me and I've been trying to sort out an argument and one of them says, no, he made me do that. Or she made me do that. And you know it's really not true. And so Paul's saying here, look, mankind, you cannot say that the world made you do it. You can't say that the devil made you do it because you are in agreement with these things. You love these things. You love the evil history of the world and you love the devil and his work. That's what he's trying to say here. So then he goes on in verse 3, having sort of laid out this internal evil of man and the fact that man is joined externally to evil, he then tells us what the result of it looks like, what the behavior of mankind is like in this state, because he says among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, which means this is the way we behaved, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now when he uses the word flesh there, he's not talking about our bodies, or our our bones and our joints and all of the things that we have in our bodies. He's talking about that part of us That the bible would say is sinful within our hearts our sinful nature and the scriptures are very clear about what the results are when we invest in that part of ourselves and we see that very clearly in galatians 5 verses 19 and 21 where paul wrote this he said now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery fornication uncleanness lewdness idolatry sorcery hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the things that are listed here that we used to live in that mankind lives in, and lives in without any control whatsoever, and invests in over and over again, doesn't worry about the consequences, and this is really what is out there in the world. Have you ever heard of songs that say that the world is a beautiful place and life is great, And, you know, it's a wonderful place to be in the world. And there's definitely some truth to that, that God's creation is beautiful. But underneath that, these things here that are listed, that's what's predominantly happening in the world. It doesn't sound like the place that I want to live in. Paul certainly didn't want to remain much longer in this place. Because if you remember in 1 Corinthians, he said... If we hope in this world as Christians, we of all people should be the most pitied. Because Paul knew what was in this world. These things here that are in Galatians 5. So he says in this text, he's trying to present the fact that man is locked away. If you imagine man locked away in a box, a wooden box that has a lock on, which is Sin, rebellion, evil. And man cannot get out of that box. He is locked away in that box, tight. And he's trying to say, he's trying to present this to us. He's trying to say, look, this is what man is like. And then he goes on after this to tell us what the consequences will be if man remains in that place, if he remains in that box, because he says and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We were, he's saying here, as uh, people who have now been saved, when we weren't saved, we were children of wrath, just like every other person in the world at the moment who doesn't know God. Now this is not just Paul's teaching. John the Baptist taught this as well. In uh, John 3.36 he said, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so when he uses this phrase here, children of wrath, it's this idea that God is up here, and rebellious man is underneath here, and there is wrath that abides over that rebellious mankind. Now when we say wrath, what do we mean? Well, I would define wrath this way or the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's perfect anger, hatred, and activity to get rid of sin in its entirety. It's God's perfect anger and hatred and his perfect activity to get rid of sin in its entirety. And the Bible's very clear that God is a God of wrath. He, he's even demonstrating his wrath now in society. In Romans 1 it says that one of the ways that God demonstrates his wrath is he gives societies over to uncontrolled sexual immorality. He gives societies over to homosexuality or accepting it and acknowledging it as being as an equal truth. He gives societies over to a debased mind. Does that sound like anywhere to you? Sounds a bit like the UK and this is happening not just here, it's happening all over the world even in America at the moment and there's also the Bible teaches that in the future there's going to be a day of wrath judgment day when every single human being will stand before God and will have to give an account of their lives and God will judge them based upon their sin and based upon their response to Jesus But of course, we can't talk about wrath in the church, can we? Because it's not politically correct to talk about the fact that God is angry, that God has a hatred towards sin. And also, we don't talk about wrath in the church because often when we think about God's wrath, we think about it in the wrong terms. We think about God's wrath, how we would be wrathful. wrathful. We think of it as uncontrolled, unjust, Um, unfair, but God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is perfect. God's wrath is good. And I want to suggest to you today that the wrath of God is not something that we should fall back away from. It's not something that we should not be thankful for. You could even argue that it's something that we should in some ways rejoice in. Not that we rejoice that wicked man dies, but that when God's wrath is demonstrated, we are seeing the wholeness of his character. And for us to see the wholeness of God's character is a glorious thing. So when we see God's wrath, we see his fairness and justice towards sinners. We see his righteousness towards sinners. We see his holiness, his set-apartness, sinners and think about this if God was not a God of wrath then that means that he doesn't take sin seriously and if God doesn't take sin seriously then he can't be perfect and if God is not perfect then he's not worthy of our worship I want to say to you today brothers and sisters that let's not shy away from saying that God is a God of wrath Let's be thankful for it. Because of God's wrath, sin is one day going to be completely dealt with and got rid of. Hallelujah. If he wasn't wrathful, then it can't be. So when Paul is saying here that every single person who doesn't know God is under the wrath of God, we need to accept that, we need to receive it, and we need to tell people about it. So, I understand that this first half is really, <laughs> is really quite sobering, it's quite depressing. Uh, there's not a lot, lot of good stuff here, but it's the truth. We need to know this stuff about mankind. Because unless mankind first knows this about himself, he cannot accept what we're going to hear now in the second half of this text. And of course, if I stopped there, it would be such a terribly depressing Sunday, wouldn't it? And you'd all go home and ring John up and say that Adam shouldn't preach again. <laughs> but what does he say next? He says, But God. But God. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. These two words, but God, are probably some of the most important words in this text. They speak to us that there is, there's a wetting of our, our hearts here, or, or our excitement to find out more that there's something within God that moved him to act for man in his predicament even when it would have been completely justifiable for God to leave mankind and say, you can get on with it, I'll leave you in your sin, I'll judge you in the future, and you won't be able to say anything to me. These words, but God, speak hope to humanity. They are like the cold drink of water that you crave on a, on a hot day when you've walked 10 miles They're like the blood transfusion to the patient who's on the table and is hemorrhaging in an operation. They they are like the physical touch of a loved one that you haven't seen for six months, and they come and embrace you. These words are incredibly hopeful, and they're only two words, but God. Think about that this week, brothers and sisters. Keep those words in your mind, but God. I really feel that these are words that we should speak more. This week when you feel discouraged or the devil's lying to you and saying that you're not saved, say, but God, but God has done something for me. Remember that. So he goes on in in verse 4 and 5 and he reveals to us, I'd say, the heart of God and what God has done for humanity. I'm going to read those two verses again. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there are three words in these two verses that we need to just focus on for a minute or two. They are mercy, they are love, and they are grace. And each one of those words are linked to God in some way. It says that he's rich in mercy, that he has a great love, and it says that we've been saved by grace. And of course, God is the only one that can save anyone. So, he is gracious. Mercy, love, and grace. And these are big, they're small words, but they have a lot of big spiritual and theological significance. And we need to Just think about them for a minute when he says mercy there this is the idea that God is a God who doesn't give to people what they deserve when he says that he's a he's a God of love it means that God is a God who would give himself for other people for their good and when it says grace there it's the idea that God is a God who wants to give to people what they don't deserve. They're the definitions of those words. And up until this point, when Paul was writing this, they would have just had the Old Testament Scriptures. And in the Old Testament, the best way to see that God was this way was how he related to Israel. When God called Israel out of Egypt, he did it in grace and love, because I think it was Joe who said this a few weeks ago, there was nothing about Israel that made them special to any other nation. They weren't huge in number, they weren't very righteous, they weren't very wise, but God chose them in his grace. He wanted to pour his favour out on them and love them. And then, as Israel was called by God and lived with God, they failed him over and over and over again. But God, in his mercy, many times he could have wiped them out. But because he was merciful to Israel, he didn't give them what they deserved. That's how we see in the Old Testament, I think profoundly, that God is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy and a God of love. And David summed it up this way in Psalm 103, verse 8. He said quite categorically through his experience of seeing God relate to the nation of Israel, he said, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. And the other word for there you could translate it, abounding in love, or covenantal love. This is what God is, brothers and sisters, this is what he is like. This is his heart, this is his salvific heart to mankind. He is gracious, he is merciful, and he is loving. And aren't you thankful this morning that he is that way? Because the Bible says very clearly that mankind cannot save himself. In Romans it says, by the deeds of the law, by our own ability, we cannot be justified, we can't be saved. So the only way salvation can come is if God is gracious, he's merciful, and he's loving. Hallelujah. So what has he done? Well, he tells us in this verse, it says that with this great love, he has loved us. And that's in the past tense. It's speaking of something that happened before this period when he wrote this. And I believe what he's referring to here is Jesus on the cross. That He's referring specifically that God loved us the most when Jesus was hanging there on the tree. I say this because in Romans 5, verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, (laughs) Christ died for us. He demonstrates his own love to each and every single one of you in this room that Jesus died for you. And when, of course, you meditate on what Jesus did, you can see that it is profound love. Because what did Jesus do on the cross? He took upon himself all of our sin. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He took the wrath of God for us. He died our death paying our debt, justly dealing with our sin. Is there any greater love than that, brothers and sisters? No, there is not. Even Jesus himself says this in John 15 and 13. He says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. There is no greater love what Jesus did on that tree and this is important it's important because in the first half of this text we talked about the profound depravity of man but even though that's the case man is still created in God's image even though that image is marred and because we're created in God's image and God is a God of love each and every one of us in here has a profound desire to be loved We have a profound desire to experience it, to be involved with it. We struggle to give it out, but even within us, we do actually want to love. But the problem is, for each and every one of us in here, we often want to receive love from somebody else other than God. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your job. Maybe it's money, maybe it's your sports team, maybe it's your hobby. You all, we all have a tendency to want to be loved by things other than God. We put things before him. And I want to ask you a serious question in this place this morning. Think about your own life. Think about your heart right now in this, in this moment and think, what do I most want to receive love from? What do I want to receive affection from? Sacrifice from? Touch from? Perseverance from? And if you are thinking of something that isn't God, let me ask you a serious question. Would that person or would that thing do what Jesus did for you on the cross? The answer to that question is they wouldn't because they're not perfect and they're not God and they don't have God's love so if you're in this place this morning and you're a Christian and you know in your heart of hearts that you want to receive love from somebody or something else other than God first you need to know that's an idol and you need to turn from that in this place this morning and turn back to God and receive his perfect love for you that he provided for you on the cross and if you're in this place and you have never put your faith in jesus you've never seen love in your life maybe you've been for a terrible time in your life maybe you were abused as a child or you've had horrible things happen to you i want to tell you in this place this morning there's one who loved you so much that he went to the cross for you And you are loved by this God, the one who made you and created you, and he wants you to receive that love this morning. So, going into the last part of our text, in verses, or the end of verse 5 and verses 6 and 7, we see, so we've spoken about what God is like in his heart, we've spoken about what God has done in, in Jesus dying on the cross, and now we see what the consequences are of that. And the consequences of that are that in the rest of this text, he lists three blessings that come from the cross. Three blessings that people have when they are believers. The the rest of this text is really a bit like a newspaper headline of what the blessings are for a new humanity that God is creating. These are kind of like the headlines that lead on to what's going to be spoken of really in the rest of this book. They are an unpacking of what was spoken in the first week when, well actually it might be in the second week when Joe spoke, when he said that we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Well what you're going to be introduced to today is that some of those blessings that we live in now as Christians and there are three of them. The first one is in verse 5, where he says that the cross, and having responded to, that, to the cross, makes or allows us to be made alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And what he's speaking of there is that the first blessing that we have as believers is that we have the reality of being born again, or made anew, or being given a new life, being regenerated. In very basic terms what this means is what God does when he makes you alive with Christ is he takes away that spiritual deadness that you had in your soul to God and he brings life to that part of you and he enables you to be able to have newness of life and to be able to have a relationship with God when you weren't able to in the past now Jesus was very clear in John 3 that this idea of being born again was not just a gift but it was a necessity for people who were gonna know God and people who are gonna have a relationship with him because remember Jesus said unless one is born again they can't see the kingdom of God and they can't enter into the kingdom of God so this idea of being made alive with Christ has to take place for someone to be with God And you see that in this text because he says, by grace you have been saved. So in a real sense, when we're born again, that is the ample evidence that we are saved, that we have been made right with God. Uh, Jesus said in John 3 that this idea of being born again was a ministry of the Holy Spirit because he says that when you are born again, you're born of the Spirit. And so what's been happening in the last 2,000 years is that when Jesus died and he rose again, and he ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit, the spirit has been making people alive with Christ. And what that means very simply is the spirit goes into someone's heart, into their soul, into their spirit, he makes them anew and he dwells there forever. He seals them with the Holy Spirit and he enables that person to begin to have a relationship with God through prayer, through the word, through going to church, having fellowship with other Christians, and he begins a work of changing that person to become more like Jesus in their life here in this world. But it's very important also to see that this act of being made alive with God is only something that can come about by the will of God himself. Now, we see that very clearly in John chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13, where he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And what this is teaching is very clear that the, the actual reality of being made alive with Christ has to come from the will of God. It's his decision to do that for somebody. And that's important because this text is teaching that you can only be made alive with Christ through God's mercy and through his grace. And so what we deserve as sinners is to stay in that place of deadness, to stay in that place of not having a relationship with God. But because God is merciful, because he doesn't give us what we deserve, but he gives us what we don't deserve, I think I'm getting that right. He gives us; he has favor on us. He makes us alive with Christ, and that's important. Listen, because if you were made alive with Christ by your will alone, then it would not be of grace and mercy; it would be of your own merit. So, what we see in this first blessing is that God is making this new humanity that is no longer spiritually dead, but spiritually spiritually alive. And it's a humanity that is always being led to humility, always being led to humbleness, because the person that is made alive will always realise that they're in that place because of God's grace and because of his mercy. So he then then goes on in verse 6 to speak about the second blessing. And he says that once you're made alive with Christ, you're also, he raised us up together together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the second blessing is this, that you've been made alive with Christ, you're born again, you're regenerated, and now you have a new identity as a person. You are now in Christ. Now the Bible is very clear that there are two identities that you can have. You can either be in Adam, who is the first man, or you can be in Christ. When you're not saved and you're an unbeliever, you're an Adam. And we've talked a lot about what he's like in the first half of this text today. But you could only be made to be in Christ by being alive with Christ. And so this idea of our new identity is from a core of knowing that you are now united with Jesus. You are now in union with Christ when you are made alive with him. Well, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean to be united with Christ? What does it mean to be in union with him? Well, first of all, I'd say it's got more to do with how God views you than how you feel. One of the mistakes that many Christians make is they define whether they're united to Christ or not by the way that they feel. That can be, you know, sometimes you can feel closer to the Lord than others, but the reality is is that when you're united with Christ, it's about how you, by faith, receive how God views you now. And the person who's united with Christ or in union with him, God views that person in three distinct ways. He views them electively, he views them representatively, and he also views them actively in being able to, to live a new life. So in terms of electively, when you're in union with Christ, the person who's now saved and believes, God views you as having been united with Christ from the foundation of the world. Joe spoke about that a few weeks ago. Representatively, when you are in union with Christ, for the person who's saved and and, um, has faith, God views that when Jesus was alive, and he was living a perfect life, that that righteousness now belongs to you. And that also when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus took your sin and was judged for it. And then also, lastly, actively to be able to live a new life when you are saved, when you're born again and you believe, God views that you are actually with Christ at the cross. Your old man died there, and you were raised with him to new life when he was risen again, so that you can live a new life. That's what it means, in a nutshell, to be in union with Christ. But notice here that what he's got in view, I would say, is the part of our union that's active, the part that means we have a new life. Because he says there that we've been raised up together We've been made to sit together in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Now, to understand this very important idea and doctrine, we have to go to Romans 6. And I just want to read a couple of verses there from Romans 6, verses 5 to 6. It says, For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly also we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now these verses in Romans 6, you have to understand the context to get what he's saying there and in this place here in Ephesians 2. So in Romans 5, Paul's been talking about the wonderful doctrine of being justified in Jesus and that God's grace abounds over every one of our sins. And so some people in the church, and some people today do this in the church, they say, well, if God's that gracious, then we could just live our own life, we could do what we want, we can sin, and we can get away with it, because where sin abounds, grace abounds. And Paul says, well, no, that can't be the case. It certainly cannot be the case because of what he writes here. And Paul in Romans 6 is saying that for the person who's truly believed in Jesus, who's truly been converted... When Jesus died, God views that that person's old sinful man died with Christ. And that when Jesus rose from the dead, that person was raised to new life. So the person who's truly saved, truly born again, no longer lives a life where sin is the dominant authority, but the Holy Spirit, Jesus, is the dominant authority in that person's life. And so Paul says it's absolutely preposterous to think that if you're born again and saved that you can somehow live the old life. It's completely illogical he's saying it. And so when he says here that we've been raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, he's wanting to get back to what John was saying last week where he says that, That same power that raised Jesus from the dead and enabled him to ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father is in you right now. And because that same power is in you, you're able to live a life of righteousness, fruitfulness and joy in the Lord. But he also says, notice that it's together that we've been raised up together, we've been made to sit together in the heavenly places. So this new identity that you have in Christ is not something that you do on your own. It's something that you do with other believers. And I would even say here that he's suggesting that to live in the fullness of your new identity in Christ, you have to be fully involved in fellowship with other Christians. That's how you see the power of this new identity being lived out In the church so i want to just ask you this morning are you in a place today where you're struggling with the sin or you're struggling to overcome the power of a sin in your life are you struggling to live in this newness of life could it be that you're not living in the fullness of this because you're not fully involved fully immersed in fellowship with other believers and you're kind of living a separate life on your own And because of that, you're not able to live in the fullness of this new identity. Just think about that and meditate on that. But again, in this second blessing, we see that God is making this humanity that is alive, to have a relationship with him, is always being led to humbleness and is able to live a life of righteousness and fruitfulness and in unity with other people together, not on your own. In the past, when you were in Adam, you used to sin on your own for your own self-centeredness and your own pride. But now God is making a new humanity that's growing in righteousness and holiness and it's in unity. It's together with other believers. Now lastly, the third and final blessing in verse 7. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus so we've seen that the blessing you've been blessed to be born again you've been blessed to have a new identity and now I would say that the third blessing is assurance of glory when he says here that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus he's saying that the cross enables us to have the confidence that we are going to be there in eternity with Christ. When it says ages to come, it's a reference to the eternal glory that is going to come in the future. And so the cross enables us to have the confidence that if you have received Jesus, if you're born again, if you have this new identity, then God is wanting to show his kindness towards us and his grace towards us in eternity. And there's a lot of presumptive language here from Paul, saying... If these things have happened to you then you are going to receive that grace and kindness in the future so i would say that this third blessing is that you can be assured of eternity you can be assured that you are going to be in glory in the future now i know there's a lot of debate in the church about whether you can lose your salvation and not lose your salvation, and I don't really want to get into that today, but I think this text is pretty clear. I think this is one of the clearest texts that speak of us having confidence that if you belong to Jesus, you will always belong to Jesus, and you will experience his glory and his kindness and his grace in that eternal realm. And so again, the third thing that you see God doing in making this new humanity is that previously man was under the wrath of God and he was going to be judged. But now the new humanity can be confident of God's blessed glory for the whole of eternity. So, I want to just address those of us in here as I finish today who are Christians. Those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, those of you who are born again. And I want to remind you very tentatively and graciously and gently that these blessings that I've talked about today, or God's spoken about, belong to you. Now that's a bit of a simple exhortation for you to go home with. But I say that because I believe that there are some of us in here who are dull, to these blessings. There are some of us who have heard this stuff over and over again over many years and we've just kind of got blasé about it and we're used to it and we don't really rejoice in these things. We are dull to it. And I believe that Jesus wants to say to us as a church this morning that we need to wake up. We need to wake up away from that dullness of heart that we might have with us. Because you are going to hear over the next number of weeks and months the fullness of what God has done for you in Christ and what he's enabled you to live out as a believer. And if you're dull, you're not going to hear it. And I just feel the Spirit wants to say that. He he wants to say to us, we need to wake up. We need to go away this week and think about these blessings and really ask our hearts, do I actually rejoice in these things or am I just kind of like going through life as a believer and just, yeah, well, yeah, I'm born again and yeah, I've got the power of the Spirit in me and yeah, you know, I'm going to be in glory but I've got to go to work. I just feel that we need to think about that, pray about it because God has a real richness of truth a richness of life, a richness of the spirit that he wants to speak to us over these next few months as we go through this book. But also, for those of you who don't know Jesus in this place, I just want to say to you that the idea of a humanity that is good, the idea of a humanity that is humble, is doing the right thing, is united The idea of a humanity that has hope that has been presented here is what every single person in this world wants but the problem is is that everyone wants to produce that humanity without Jesus and there is no way that you're ever going to produce this kind of life this kind of humanity without the risen Lord Jesus Christ and I just want to exhort you in this place or if you're listening online and you have not responded to Jesus yet, then let me ask you a question, do you want this kind of life? Do you want this kind of humanity? Do you want to live in a place of glory and perfection forever? Well, the only way is to turn away from who you really are, which is what I presented in the first half of this text. Turn away from that, acknowledge that before God in humility, turn away from it and turn to Jesus. Turn to him in repentance, in faith, and have these blessings be made alive, have a new identity and have the blessed assurance of hope of eternal glory.